0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. Um, I feel really good to be here. I'm so honored and privileged to be among you. And also, this morning at 9.15, I really find it difficult to relate to people who can get it together enough to get to church by nine. on a Sunday in July, but you guys, you know, coming in with a coffee around 11, you're my people. (laughs) So I feel like we're gonna get along just fine, okay? So I'm pretty excited uh, and really honored. And also, I mean, it is literally the delight of my life to be invited to talk about Jesus. Um, and really, amazingly, I, I first kind of encountered a transformational experience with Jesus in Toronto, and uh, in the the basement of the old city hall, um, where the, it was a holding cell at the time. And I had been raised in a, a fairly uh, religious household. My parents were religious leaders, and I kind of had this uh, a couple of feelings about that. Uh, one was that I felt like you know Christianity was safe and boring. Uh, I used to try to help out, you know, as a kid, I would take up the offering, but then they'd always make me put it back. (laughs) Um, My mom used to say, you know, I was gifted at many things, but particularly doing wrong things (laughs) seemed to be my specialty. Um, And so I kind of, I had this nagging sense that not only was uh, Christianity kind of boring and safe, but also that God was perpetually disappointed in me that's kind of the attitude I felt like if not angry with me definitely perpetually disappointed and uh, and so as a result was kind of uh, distant from God and not interested very much and I uh, my life because I believed that I also believed a lie and the lie was that rebellion would lead to freedom That's a common lie that's still sort of pumped out uh, everywhere. But I believe that rebellion would lead to freedom. And so I pursued rebellion in the hopes of being free. uh, And it didn't work out for me. As a matter of fact, my life got smaller and smaller and smaller until finally I was in the basement of City Hall in Toronto in a holding cell with a locked door where I couldn't even leave the room. Uh, That looked like uh, rebellion and drugs and all that that trajectory uh, and crime. I was a car thief. I used to steal a lot of cars. And uh, I'm constantly apologizing for it now as I drive around Toronto again in familiar places. I'm always like, I think I know this garage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I used to say, you know, maybe probably to introduce you to how low and the depth sort of of my own uh, rebellion, Uh, One time, I was in court, and the defendant was coming whose car we had stolen. My partner in crime and I were in the the crime docket, and the the person came in and introduced themselves as Mr. Rogers. And I was like, that's pretty low. You know, I stole Mr. Rogers' car. Um, I remember my partner in crime leaning over to me at the time, singing, it's a terrible day in the neighborhood. (laughs) Terrible day. And I said, boys and girls, can you say criminal? So that's kind of where uh, things had uh, landed. And I was raised in the Salvation Army. Uh, My parents were the the leaders. But the Salvation Army, particularly some folks within the Salvation Army, just kind of refused uh, to give up is really what happened. They refused to let go. And I remember being in this cell finally in, like, a serious amount of trouble locked, and this uh, Salvation Army officer named Joyce Ellery came in. I remember seeing her coming from a distance and thinking to myself, oh, brother, what is with these guys? You know, they just won't stop. And also, I was thinking to myself, here comes the lecture, right? Like, I should know better. I have resources. I have, like, what is... And so when she came in to see me in this, in this jail, it was not that re- receptive. And instead of a lecture, she actually just wrapped her arms around me. She handed me a lawyer's card, which I think is a really great example of practical Christianity. And, and then she just whispered in my ear, um, I love you. And then she left. And I remember, like, I didn't hug her back. I was not interested in receiving love. Uh, I remember as she was leaving, I shouted out after her, you didn't even bring me a smoke. You know, practicing an attitude of gratitude. And uh, so she left and the door, you know, closed. And that's when uh, Jesus showed up. And this is always tricky for me to explain. Um, I don't really, you know, I don't really know exactly what happened except I recognized a person that came to my cell as the person of Jesus. Um, And Jesus did the same thing that this lady had done. He wrapped his arms around me and whispered in my ear, I love you. And in in that moment, in that jail cell, all those many years ago, the best way I can describe what happened is that somebody turned on a light and I kind of woke up. I, I saw things clearly for the first time. I remember it, it sounded like this. I can't really repeat every word I said, but I can tell you it sounded like, holy, I'm in jail, you know. Like, even the recognition that I was in a place I didn't want to be uh, came to me on that day. Now, what happens in a story like this is I want to just kind of leave it there. What I want to do is kind of Disney-fy it. And I want to say that, like, I had this encounter with Jesus in jail and then fairy dust fell from heaven. And, you know, ta-da! I, like, looked down, and I was a brand-new person, and, 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 you know, and that's, that's, that wouldn't be true. That's not exactly how it went. Uh, what happened was the light turned on, and I saw for the first time that there was, first of all, a God who was for me, not against me. First of all, there was a person named Jesus whose love was greater than my own rebellion you know there's i used to i use this uh, verse to describe my own experience that the apostle paul used in colossians 1 21 22 it says once i was alienated from god and i was an enemy in my own mind because of my evil behavior but now christ has reconciled us through his death on the cross he has given us a way access to be reconciled to god and yeah, i was just rereading that verse the other day and i was, I was so fascinated by what I had missed before. It says, once I was alienated from God and I was an enemy in my own mind. You remember Coconut Joe? <laughs> Do you ever remember that, that clothing company and he was a legend in his own mind? Uh, this is, this, I was an enemy of God in my own mind and it struck me so profoundly the last couple of weeks that nobody, there's no human being who lives who's an enemy of God. Because God is on the side of humans God is for you, not against you. That Jesus has postured himself and he came to earth, not in spite of you, but because of you. Literally, there are no enemies of Christ except in their own minds. And that's began to change for me when I encountered Jesus, A light went on and I began to understand that God was not against me, he was for me. And the invitation that Jesus gave to me all those years ago was an invitation to follow him. It was an invitation to align my life According to his ways and his purposes in the world and so to be honest I've been on this incredible journey for many many years now, and it's a journey of transformation But I'm still being transformed into the ways of Jesus to live like him and the invitation that he gives me and there's kind of been these posture shifts I call them or kind of like realignments in my life that have aligned me to the purposes and the ways of Jesus. And that's really what I want to share with you is this long, beautiful invitation that Jesus gives to everybody to follow him and the alignment, the shifts, the postures that are necessary for that to happen and the things that I've been trying to practice on a day to day basis and some catalytic moments in my life where God has really invited me further and deeper and into wider places to practice the ways of Christ. The, the first posture shift for me was about surrender. Now, surrender has always been a tricky topic for me. And uh, Jesus models this better than anybody else uh, ever because he was the perfect human being. And he modeled the posture of surrender so well for us. But we resist it so much because it's so contrary to our human nature. You know, our human nature, I believe, I, I call it the Hercules myth. You know, our human nature, my human nature, is to try to be better. It's to try to do more. It's to try to ascend. It's, it's a human nature of ascension. If I'm better, if I'm stronger, if I, maybe I can ascend every other normal person and be better than and greater than. And this is this Hercules myth, right, where Hercules is literally trying to ascend to be worthy of the gods. But Jesus, of course, descends. He is descending still. I mean, Jesus is like descending. That's what he does. He leaves the gods. He leaves heaven. He leaves, you know, this place of of equality and like glory and king of kings and lord of lords. And he descends into the human condition, into the human form of a little baby. But then in the scriptures, when Jesus is about to launch his ministry, he descends even further. I don't know if you ever think about this uh, in, in a posture of surrender. His first kind of ministry launch was when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And when he's baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist was doing this work of repentance. He was kind of preparing people for Jesus to come. And he was asking them to repent of the things, the brokenness inside of them and the way they contributed to the brokenness of the world. And it was a baptism of repentance. And so Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he says to John the Baptist like, baptize me. And john the baptist knows enough about jesus to know that there is no brokenness inside of him and he's never contributed to the brokenness of the world so he says well this doesn't really work for you (laughs) this is for like humans who've done some stuff wrong you know this is for humans trying to change you're like hello perfect you don't need to change and jesus says no do it it's right because what jesus was on was a mission of dissension he was wanting to surrender himself not only to the human form but to the human condition And so he goes under the water and when he comes up out of the water in this posture of surrender it says that the heavens were open and there was a dove that descended and there was a voice from heaven that said this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and you know in in Mark's gospel specifically when it says that that the heavens were open the word there actually means torn it means ripped open It means that jesus when he descends when he gives over when he gives in to the greater purposes of god when he says i'm going to surrender my life for something greater than my life that's when heaven literally rips open you'll know that it happens again at the end of mark's gospel when he's on the cross in an ultimate posture of surrender When he literally has given his life, his physical life, and that the temple that used to separate God and all of his glory from the people is ripped, the scripture says, from top to bottom, ripped open. In other words, God's love cannot be contained and God's presence should not be contained. I remember God really, really reminding me of this and, and inviting me into this when I was trying to give my son some medicine. My middle son's name is Judah, and his first two words that he loved saying before he could really had much of vocabulary was no and way, and he used to say them together all the time. No way. (laughs) And particularly, he couldn't stand uh, having medicine in any way. I could never get it, and he had this fever, it was spiking, and an ear infection. I went to the doctor. I said, Doctor, you gotta hook me up with something all the kids will use. And the doctor said, "Ooh, I got something all the t- toddlers dig right now. You know, it's, it's it's everywhere." And he hooked me up with this premium brand of penicillin that was liquid and banana flavored. And he says all the kids dig this. So I went home, and my eldest son Zion and I concocted a plan to try to convince Judah to take this medicine. So we pretended we were monkeys because it's banana flavored. So we're like, "Ooh," ha, ha, ha. and he's like, "Ooh," ha, ha. and we're trying to give each other this medicine, you know, and we're pretending like we love it. And we're like, "Judah, do you want some?" And Judah just looks at us like we're fools which you know he might have had a point and he said uh, no way so zion and i regroup and we're like yeah he's more of a lion kind of a guy so that we pretend to be tigers that eat the monkeys that eat this medicine because like that's how good this medicine is and then we look at judah you know rawr do you want to be a tiger who eats your medicine you know and judah says no way and so i finally was res- you know like because i'm kind and generous and you know gentle uh, in my motherly, maternal instincts, like every parent on the planet has ever done this, I finally just held that little sucker down. <laughs> <And> I just <laughs> I just sat on his writhing little body, you know, and I, I armed his shoulders down to the floor, and then still his head's like, no way, no way! And I say, Zion, quick, get his head! So Zion's holding his head, and I ever so gently and lovingly, kindly take the syringe, and I shove that medicine down <laughs> his throat. And I say, yes, way. <laughs> and right then is when God spoke to me. That's partly how I know God, the Holy Spirit's a woman, by the way, she's always interrupting. <laughs> but I, I, right then, I felt like God said to me, oh, I see, Danielle, you do your salvation like you do your medicine. I said, well, pff, of course. Like, hello, people are dying, right? People are dying of narcissism, of selfishness. People are dying of brokenness. They have an infection. We call it sin sometimes. It's got to get in there. I mean, I come from a tradition of the church. Catherine Booth, a founder of the Salvation Army, she was once criticized by the media saying, that Salvation Army is always shoving the gospel down people's throats. And to which she responded without batting an eye or even thinking twice about it, like, "Uh, duh, how else would it get there? And I, I said, of course, I, I love people, I love my son, that's why I'm shoving penicillin down his throat, I've got to get to what ails him. And I felt like God said, no, it's not the, it's not the quantity of the message, it's not the salvation of the, the, that's the problem, it's the, it's, the, it, 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 it's the quantity, not the quality of the message, it's the quantity. And and he reminded me of this song. I actually, I have it tattooed on my my wrist. It's a song that was written by William Booth. It says, Oh, boundless salvation, deep ocean of love. Oh, fullness of mercy Christ brought from above. The whole world redeeming. So rich and so free. Oh, boundless salvation, come roll over me. And I felt like God, this holy invitation said to me again would you like a banana flavored salvation that's just enough to fix what ails you would you like to receive that or would you like to enter your whole life into the flow of god's salvation for the whole world would you like to give your life over to the purposes that are so much larger than you, to a salvation that means to actually change the world. Would you like that kind of experience? And that was when I realized that this posture of surrender was not something that just happened one day. It was something that would have to happen every day. It would something that would have to happen as a lifestyle. It would be, have, to, have to happen when I'm tempted just to take what I need for myself. And I would forget that the invitation to follow Jesus is to lose your life. But to actually lose it for something so much better than your own individual life. Something so much greater. The posture of surrender is something that I'm learning to live still in a moment by moment day by day transformational experience with this person who is jesus the other posture that's been transforming for me is a posture of generosity now i'm i tend to suffer from a spirit of cheap (laughs) i tried to drive it out one time but it came back seven times stronger and, uh, and it's a stingy posture. This also, I think, has to do with a religious upbringing sometimes, is I'm duty-bound. You know, I, I care because I should, and I ought to. Like, I'm sort of, like, stuck doing it, which is just the worst kind of care, isn't it? And Jesus, you know, when he, when he talks to his disciples and he sends them out, there's a beautiful passage of Scripture in all of the Gospels where he sends the disciples out, and he says this. He says, you know, heal the sick and confront the demons, any, any kind of wherever evil is, confront it, like drive it out. Like, like heal people, touch the lepers, like bring inclusion into communities. He says this, he says, freely you've received, so freely give. And it's, like, it's a recipe of what I understand to be the posture of generosity. See, I, I, this happened, uh, I was at a leader's retreat many, many, many years ago. And I had to be at it. I didn't want to be at it. It was in the northern British Columbia, middle of nowhere in this kind of place. And I had just been speaking in America at some, like, really fancy conference. And, you know, when you're speaking in America, especially at a fancy conference, they treat you really special. And you start to believe that you might be special. You know you really start to believe it. it's like you drink some kind of kool-aid and you start thinking you're you know you're too cool and so i then i went right from this conference to this this leader retreat that i didn't want to go to that was like in the middle of nowhere and i remember arriving and like nobody met me at the door i couldn't believe it and then like i had to carry my own bag it was shocking then i get to the desk to register and they say oh danielle we didn't realize you were coming so we forgot to save you a room I was like, are you for real? And then they said, actually, there's one room, but it doesn't have a door. But you're okay with that, right? And of course, on the outside, I said, yes, of course. It's no problem. And on the inside, I have a whole other dialogue going on. Anyone struggle with that problem? Right? Where I'm just like, these infidels. Anyway. So I think to myself, you know, I'm just going to shake off this American attitude problem I've developed while speaking there, and I'm just going to go for a little run and, like, clear my head, and that's jet lag, you know, whatever, get this out of the way. So I go for a run, I'm coming back from my run, and I can see all the leaders are having dinner in this dining hall, which they forgot to tell me about, by the way. (laughs) Pharisees. So... I'm in a group called Pharisees Anonymous, by the way, if anyone needs it. But anyway, uh, so this leader comes running out, and I remember her saying, Oh, Danielle, thank God you're here. I thought to myself, finally, somebody gets it. And she says, uh, there's this homeless couple that's stranded in the next town. And we were talking over dinner, which I wasn't invited to, uh, about you know, who could help them. And we thought, oh, Danielle would be the perfect person. And then you just ran through the field, you know, and ta-da. So she hands me uh, the credit card. And she says, could you go sort these guys out? And I say, it would be my pleasure. But I thought something else. I'm in the car the whole way i'm just going what am i the last christian leader who cares about the poor things like mother teresa things you know stuff like that and uh i see them on the side of the road they're not hard to spot we're nowhere and i pull over i say guys i hear you need some help you know what do you need they say we need some food and uh, and uh, i said yeah i hear you and uh we need bus tickets you know we're stranded here and i said yeah i hear you on both fronts so they get in. We go to the grocery store, which is in the middle of northern British Columbia. So it's literally the most expensive grocery store I've ever visited in my entire life. And I remember walking into this store, and the first thing that hit me was the smell of the strawberries. You ever have that where you're just like, and you know how you should never shop when you're hungry? And I was really hungry. And I walked into the store, and I just remember I turned to these guys. I said, do you smell that? <laughs> and these two homeless guys were like, yeah. It's strawberries and then we both look over and we see the strawberries are $9.99 each <laughs> It's like almost as bad as buying an avocado in Toronto And we're and so instantly I go into my oh that would have been nice but then I remember I have the credit card for the entire organization in my back pocket And I go, guys, let's get some strawberries, man. And we go over and we load up with strawberries. And then we go to the bread section. And when we get to the bread section, they go for like the 99-cent Wonder Bread. And I said, no, only almond-encrusted will do for us. Do you have any olive-infused? Like, what do we need to do here to like get the best bread we've ever dreamed about getting? And that's kind of how our grocery store experience went, where we were just like eating and laughing and joking and putting things in this cart and piling it on. And then we check out and like cha-cha. It goes through because it's not my card. And then, you know, then when I, I put them on the bus. I go to the bus station. I say, look, like, is there any first-class tickets available? You know, and they're just like, it's a bus. No. <laughs> and I was like, dang. Anyway, uh, so we got them bus tickets, and then they're about to get on the bus. And they said to me, well, wait, before we go, like, Danielle, would you pray for us? And I remember, <laughs> that's my husband. <laughs> <I'm> not even... <laughs> and i i remember saying to myself oh yeah shoot i forgot like that's like ministry 101 right and i you're supposed to lead with it i totally forgot i got distracted by the strawberries so i was like sure what 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 can i pray for you for and they said we we want whatever you have and i was like well you can't have the credit card (laughs) because i'm literally keeping that as long as i possibly can they said no not the credit card. They said, we want this. What is this? This life, this joy, this hope, this thing we've encountered, this thing we've done together. We want this. And I was like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. And I was able to pray with them about becoming followers of Jesus and the ways of Christ. When I was driving back from that experience, I was having this debrief in my head. What transformed that experience? Because when I started it, it was miserable. I was miserable. When I started it, it was duty-bound. When I started it, it was a burden. When I started it, I had an attitude. When I started it, I didn't even like those people. But when I ended it, I was filled with hope and joy and possibility and community, and I loved those people. What happened? What transformed that experience? And I felt like God told me it was when you tapped into a resource that was bigger than you, This is when you're going to start to understand that surrender and generosity are connected. Because when you tap into a resource that is larger than your own resources, when you do this, you're going to discover the person of Jesus. Because when you look at the life of Jesus, he does this all the time. Like sometimes the disciples, one time the disciples come back and they're hungry, and they say, Jesus, you must be starving. And Jesus goes, I have food you know nothing about. (laughs) Which is always a cool line. But what is he talking about? He's talking about the resources of heaven. See, Jesus is constantly in this posture of generosity, but not just the giving out, also the receiving in. And that the receiving in and the giving out are the same posture, an open-handed posture that says, freely I receive, so freely give. See, that the scriptures are so clear about that. Jesus says this, the, mer- or the, the scriptures say that the mercy, for example, let's just start with mercy, since I'm the mother of three boys, I run out of my own mercy about 8 a.m., I'm totally out. I've tapped up all my resources of mercy and given them all away freely. And then what will I do? Then I'll tap into a resource of mercy that is eternal, that never, never, ever ends. As a matter of fact, the scripture says mercy specifically is new every morning. It's not just inexhaustible, it's fresh. And I say, God, I need mercy today. And see, what I've learned to discover in the posture of generosity is that when I'm stingy and when I'm cheap, when I don't have grace for people, when I don't have mercy for people, when I don't have hope for a situation, I have to tap into receiving it from a resource larger than my own self, which is this posture of generosity that says, God, please, I need to receive your hope, even faith when i can't believe the things that i want to be true and that god's told me i can believe i can say to god i need faith i need hope i need mercy i need perseverance i need the inexhaustible resources of heaven so that i can freely give and when i can tap into that when that posture works when my alignment shifts that's when god's kingdom can come and god's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven because it's not about me because i've surrendered my life and opened it up to resources so much bigger than my own pathetic store the final posture that's been life-changing for me and the ways of jesus and practicing this on a daily basis is a posture of mission Uh, Many, many years ago, I was uh, a volunteer, sort of, you know, my mother described my conversion experience like this. I didn't just change speeds, I I changed direction. In other words, as fast as I was headed towards rebellion was as fast as I started heading towards this person of Christ and salvation. And so I just went on this mission uh, to Russia right after the Soviet Union had collapsed and the churches were rebuilding uh, in that region. And um, we had this phone call from a guy named Vladimir Mikhailovich who told us basically thanks so much for coming back with the church, but actually the church is alive and well in the Soviet Union and that he had been actually preaching the gospel and had a whole congregation and was totally sorted." And uh, the leader that I was working with sort of said like, who is this guy? They looked for someone that was expendable in the office and they found me (laughs) and they said, Danielle, would you go check out who this guy is? So I took a translator down to the Ukraine, to the, to the Black Sea there and had a, a week-long uh, excursion to find out who this guy Vladimir Mikhailovich was. He was 88 years old at the time. I remember night after night after night after night sitting in this house he had built with his wife Anna and a translator, him telling me story after story after story of God's miraculous intervention, of God's miraculous provision, of these incredible things He taught me when he was 17 years old. He was imprisoned and for the first time for his faith and he got to the secret prison in the center of Moscow and he was in prison with 60 guys who were all murderers and thieves and like criminals and he's a 17 year old Christian and he's brand new he only got he only followed Jesus when he was 16 so he didn't know what to do he was just like I feel so overwhelmed and he said there was this one guy in his cell block that was so antagonistic and very aggressive and would beat him up and like make fun of him because he wouldn't he professed his uh, faith as a matter of fact every night Vladimir would write a note On a piece of paper that would say i need a bible please vladimir Mikhailovich," with his cell number and he would roll it up and he would stick it in a piece of bread and he would let the bread dry and during the day when he was out in the yard he would when the guards weren't looking he would toss it over the side of the wall in the hopes that i remember listening to the story going that is the most like the weirdest plan i've ever heard in my life like you're just hoping what like a bird will eat the bread but leave the note and like then someone will fight like i'm like what anyway he tells me he keeps doing this and this murderer guy in the cell keeps mocking him for wasting the bread and like wasting the paper and wasting his time because everybody knows there is no god and then like right when it was getting to the worst he said he got a delivery to his cell there was a, a door knock and this guard came and gave him this big fish now, the, the Soviet system at the time in jail, their security for no weapons getting delivered to prisoners was just to cut everything that was received in four pieces, which is not great, but also very practical. And so they just cut it in four pieces. So he said, when the guards shoved this fish at me, the fish, I could see the fish had been cut in four pieces. And I grabbed the fish, and the guard slammed the door shut. He said, this murderer guy's right there, ready to, like, clock me. And he said, I was so nervous, I dropped the fish. He said, when the fish hit the ground, it opened up in four pieces, and in the middle was a whole Bible, completely untouched. He said, the murderer fell to the ground and began to sob. There is a God. There is a God. There is a God. At 17 years old, Vladimir Mikhailovich led 60 men uh, to Jesus. That, yeah. I'm 19, 20 years old, just kind of volunteering, starting out on this journey with Jesus. And I'm thinking to myself, that's the kind of life I want to live. I want to live a life like Vladimir Mikhailovich. I want to live, and then he told me about the gulag, and the gulag after that, and I don't have time to tell you the stories he told me, but suffice to say, they're all like that. They're amazing. They're transformative. They're incredible. They're like selfless. They're others-focused. They're missional lives. And I remember thinking like, this is how I want to live my life. Then I was taking the train back to Moscow, and I was talking to my translator, who was not a Christian. She was an atheist. And I said to her, what was the most impacting thing for you about our time with vladimir and she looked at me and she said you know this is going to be tricky for you to understand i said well try me and i'm thinking to myself i've got a rolodex of the stories going on in my brain i'm just like which one's it gonna be <laughs> which miraculous intervention's going to blow her mind and she said to me well in my culture in my own situation she said i've never seen relationships done except functionally She said that the most impacting thing about my experience with Vladimir, she said, is the way he loved his wife. She said, you know, you couldn't tell because you don't speak my language, but he addressed her with such tenderness. He spoke to her with such kindness. He attended to her with such servant-heartedness. She said, I have never seen a relationship so intimate and filled with love as the relationship between that man and his wife. And the thing that I will never forget about that man is the way he loved his wife. I thought to myself, were you even listening? Were you even listening to the epic stories the people saved, the incredible impact of these supernatural, powerful, incredibly big experiences? And I felt like God say to me, were you listening? And what I started to understand that was that the posture of mission, to live a missional life, is not just to do incredibly big things for other people, but it was to live an others-focused life, which is not just glorious and not just, although sometimes it may be, but it's also up close and personal. It's also about the relationships with the people that you live with. It's also small and seemingly insignificant, except that in God's economy, mission is a posture you live, not something that you do. That kind of alignment changes the way that you, you live. How's your relationship with your wife? How's your relationship with other folks? How are you in the ways of Jesus in your everyday seemingly insignificant life that mission-infused and mission-postured could change the way the world works? So, see, the thing about my story is it didn't happen to me, you know, 25 years plus ago in downtown Toronto. It's happening to me right now. It's this invitation that Jesus has given me, not just that one day, but every day after that to align myself, to change my posture, to practice the ways of Christ in the world today, and that's what I'm after. I'm still being challenged. I'm still being transformed, and I'm still being invited into the way of Jesus as a life to live for real life right now, and this is the same invitation that Jesus gives to all of us. It's an invitation into the boundless, beautiful nature of his good news. You know, at the end of uh, my time with Vladimir, I said to him, 88 years old, filled with vigor and life, excited about how God still wanted to use him. And I said to him, what are you, how is this, what is happening, how is this working, how do you stay in this place? And he quoted to me from the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus is saying to the disciples, you know, this good news, this news of inclusion and freedom and healing and wholeness, this news, it's going to be preached to the whole world. He looked at me, he said, "Everybody's going to hear this news and then the end will come. And it kept him alive and fresh that this good news was not just for him. You understand how mission brings us back to surrender, which leads us to generosity, which brings us to mission, which leads us to surrender, which brings us back to generosity, and that the postures of Jesus as we learn the ways and the rhythms of Christ transform not only us but everybody around us too. This is the life that Jesus invites us to live. So what I do every day is I do a prayer. A body posture prayer. It literally is a realignment prayer. And I was hoping that this morning you might join me in that prayer. Indulge me and pray with me. It will include inviting you to stand up. I know this is terrible in church. Movement in general. But just, it, just to stand to your feet. And I use my body as a form of prayer And I say some words. If you want to repeat them after me, you're welcome to do so. But if you feel too awkward, that's cool too. I get it. Okay. So first I I hold my hands up like this and I make a confession. I say, I confess that my natural human posture is to fight for my right. It's to try to make something happen. But I choose, as a disciple of Jesus, a posture of surrender. I hold my hands up to say that I give up and I give in to you, Jesus. And then I I hold my hands in front of me and fists like this and I say, I confess My natural human posture is to take, and it's to keep, and it's to hold. But I choose, as a follower of Jesus, to open up my hands, to freely receive, Now here's where I pause just for a couple minutes and I just ask God for what I need. And maybe now's a good time for you. Just ask him for what you need today. Maybe you came, you need forgiveness. It's yours. Maybe You need energy and strength. It's, it's for you. You can have it. Grace and hope and faith mercy. Just receive it. Receive Him. And then I say, everything that I've received, I freely give today. And the final posture is to fold my hands over. And I say, I confess my natural human posture is to spectate. It's to criticize. It's to say it's not my problem. (laughs) But I choose as a follower of Jesus to open up my life and to say to the deepest needs of the world and to everybody around me, I'm here and all God's people said amen Amen. God bless you thanks for joining us to connect to the ministries of C4 visit c4church.com